0: Our New Testament reading is from Revelation chapter 12. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but they were defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. But they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not cling to life even in the face of death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, O Lord. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when he had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him any more, even with a chain, for he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart and the shackles he broke in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, "'What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? "'I adjure you by God, do not torment me.' "'For he had said to him, "'Come out of the man, you unclean spirit.' "'Then Jesus asked him, "'What is your name?' "'He replied, "'My name is Legion, for we are many.' "'He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. "'Now there on the hillside a great herd of swine was feeding.' and the unclean spirits begged him, send us into the swine, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered into the swine and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The swine herds ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there, clothed in his right mind, the very young man who had the legion, and they were afraid. For those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it. Then they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by the demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus refused and said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ.
1: Would you pray with me? Our gracious God, uh, we need your help this morning. We pray that as we open your scriptures and reflect on these words that we just heard and read, uh, we pray that you would speak to us and that through all of this that we're doing here, that we would hear your voice through ears of faith, that our hearts would be warmed to love you more, that our minds would be enlightened to become more aware of your loving presence your care for us, your lordship over our lives and over the heavens and the earth. And that as you meet us in this time, that we would be changed, that we would be made more alive together with Jesus, and that we would be reshaped by your grace to be more like him as those who love you and love others in your name. We ask your blessing now upon us in Jesus' name, amen. All right, this is a weird story that we just read, right? Can we all just say that, name that right out of the gates? This is a very, very weird story. And I think anytime we come upon stories in the scriptures that have to do with evil spirits or exorcisms or any of these kinds of, um, in some ways, seemingly larger than life supernatural encounters, I think there's a helpful just check-in to do with ourselves first. Like, hey, what are you... What are you feeling as we read this? What does this story stir up within you? And I think there are two unhelpful pitfalls, maybe one on each side of the road that I think it would be helpful to name and to hopefully then try to avoid once we name them. And one would be the pitfall of, when we read stories like this, to think about our world in a, maybe in an unhelpfully spooky way where we begin to fear that there's like a demon lurking in every shadow or that all the things that happen in this world might be not physical, but spiritual instead. This is something that rears its head often uh, with people who are suffering from mental illness or people who might be suffering from addiction will find occasionally in the church communities they're a part of, really bad counsel, counsel that would steer them away from medication that might help, counsel that would steer them away from therapy that might help, sometimes counsel that might steer them away from like chemotherapy that might help, right? Like there are, there's an over spiritualization that can happen where we begin to think that all the real problems are actually merely spiritual in nature. And instead of medicine, what you need is prayer, Right? And so there's this one ditch on the side of the road that is this um, forsaking our physiological, physical, material realities in the name of the spiritual in order to preserve the reality or lean into the reality of that which the scriptures clearly do testify to is the reality of spiritual things are real, right? There is a spiritual significance to our life and to everything that is more than what we see. So one of the things we, wanna, we want to avoid is this over spiritualization to the point of denying the physiological, physical, material realities that are also very real and well worth treating with respect, well worth embracing the insights and um, developments, right? That help us to treat these kinds of things. So we're a congregation, if you're wondering, this is something that comes up in our new members classes. It comes up with people getting to know us hey, what do you think about therapy? Are you gonna to try to pray away my depression or are you going to encourage me to get help? We will encourage you to get help and we will also hopefully pray together, right? All of the above. I've gone to counseling. Many of you have gone to counseling. It's something we believe in. We have therapists and mental health professionals in our community. We're very pro all of that, okay? So I just wanted to say that clearly before we get into the real weirdness of this story. There's this other side of the ditch though. There's other ditch maybe on the side of the good road that I also want us to avoid. And to illustrate this one, I want to tell you a little story about myself. Um, So I was living in West Philly. So, So Bonnie and I moved into a big house in West Philly in 2011 and we had international students living with us. We did this for five years. Over five years, we had 75 students from 18 countries live in our home. We would share three meals a week. We were essentially doing this as a ministry alongside working as part of this church community. But during that time, many of our students came from Saudi Arabia because the Saudi government loves to send their 18 year old young men overseas to learn English. It's something that they invest a lot of money in. So you get a lot of students from Saudi Arabia, you get a lot of students from China, and then you get a smattering of students from other places. But we had a lot of Saudi students. And there was this one day I was in the kitchen Um, and and one of our Saudi students was in there with me, and I had just made pasta, I think, something that involved boiling water. And I took the pot of boiling water after doing whatever it was, uh, you know, cooking or whatever, and and I dumped it into the sink. At which point, the student in my kitchen freaked out. And I didn't understand why he was freaking out, Because he was not near the boiling water. I was clearly not hurting him. I was, what is what is happening here? And he said, You're going to upset them. And I asked, upset whom? Who who are you talking about? It's like the jinn. Jinn, J-I-N-N, in Islam. It's sort of like a it's like a demon type, it's like an like an evil spirit, not so much in the big bad monster evil spirit, more in like the pesky little miscreant evil spirit that if you upset them, they're going to make your life difficult. You're going to end up losing your wallet. You're going to end up having a fight with your spouse or something, right? They're going to mess with you in a way because you've disturbed them. And in their theology, the jinn live in the unclean places. So they tend to live by the toilets and the drains, the places where the gross stuff is. And I remember just my jaw dropping. Like how in the world in 2011 or 12 or whatever it was, can you think that there are demons in the drain that I'm gonna upset with this pot of boiling water? And then I started to think about my own visceral reaction and I realized, what is my problem? My my response to him, my my, my shock and amazement that he could think such a thing has nothing to do with the fact that I am a Christian and not a Muslim. It has to do with just how secular I've become. I've drunk the Kool Aid of secularism. We all have at some level, where we live in headspace that is despiritualized. We live in a cosmos, in our imaginations, in our minds that is impersonal, not personal. It's not only that there's not a demon lurking in every shadow or a God behind every harvest or famine or rainfall or drought, it's it's that we live in a world where everything's more of, of an it than a he, she, they. Everything is more of a machine or a system some interaction of particles, energy, matter, and not involved in any personalized drama of good versus evil, God versus devil, spirits versus spirits, or whatever. And I realized in that moment, like, I actually have some growing up to do spiritually, because if I'm living in a world that is that despiritualized, there's no way that I'm gonna be a very good follower of Jesus because we believe in the living God. We believe that God has actually created the heavens and the earth, that God is alive and active today, that God has sent his son into the world to live as one of us, that this son of God who has lived in the world, died and was raised again, and now is enthroned in heaven, has sent his Holy Spirit and is busily at work today, growing us up toward the great future that he's promised and busily today by spiritual forces actually going to work and doing good work in this project of making all things new. And that there really are spirit versus spirit conflicts that are happening inside of us, around us, and in the world. And so while on one side, I don't want us to get into this over-spiritualized to the point of rejecting the physical kind of mindset that leads us into all kinds of stupid ways of living in relationship to really helpful things like medicine and therapy. I also don't want us to go the other way, and become secular, where we are blinded to the spiritual realities in our midst, where we're opposed to the idea that there actually might be more to this than what we see. Because the scriptures take very seriously the spiritual realities of our world. And the scriptures paint very vividly a world in which Jesus is enthroned above them all, and which Jesus's spirit is now at work, pulling together the people of God who will be animated by his spirit that brings forth life and goodness and justice and wholeness and thriving, all the good things. And so we come to our weird story. That's my prologue because I just, no matter what I say, things get weird when we get into weird stories. I just don't want anybody to mishear me in either of those two directions but let's get into the text. Let's get into this story. Let's get back to our mixtape where we are intentionally reading through some of these greatest hits of the Bible and looking at them afresh through these lenses of context that help us. And we're allowing these texts to have breathing room so that we might understand them a little better. What is this story about? Jesus and the Gerasene demoniac. Well, Buckle up. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. To the other side is a load-bearing wall. That is a freight-carrying phrase that we shouldn't read past too quickly. You see, what's happening here is Mark is telling the story of Jesus, and a lot of the story that's happened thus far, the story as it's being told is all happening in a region called Galilee, which is, you know, north of Jerusalem. It's around this lake that is in this book called the Sea of Galilee. It's actually an inland lake. Um, and what we have seen so far as Mark has introduced this gospel of Jesus, we've seen Jesus get involved in the Jewish territories around the Sea of Galilee. He goes to Capernaum and takes up residence and begins his ministry. And we see Jesus doing things like going into the synagogue there. We see Jesus doing things in very Jewish space. But Galilee was a region in Jesus's day that was divided up into several different sections. Uh, After Herod's rule was split up, it it was split up into regions called tetrarchies and you had different tetrarchs or rulers ruling over different sections. And so the the side over on the west side of the lake was ruled by one person. The side sort of to the north and east ruled by someone else. And then the, the part to the south and east was a whole other kind of region called the Decapolis. And the Decapolis was a league of 10 cities, or at least when it was named, it was 10, sort of like the Big Ten Conference, it's not 10, it used to be, I guess. Now it's like 14 and counting, right? But it's like, so the Decapolis at some times in history included 10 towns and sometimes it, I think, ballooned up to like 14 or 16, like the big 10. Um, but it's essentially, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a, yeah, a league. That's what it is. It's, it's, it's a, a team of city-states that didn't report to the same governor that the other areas did. So they reported to their governor. So it, it, for most of the time, it was the governor in Damascus in Syria, which was another one of the 10 cities. So there were 10 of them, right? There were some close to this place in Galilee, like Sketopolis and Hippos that were right there by the lake. But then there's others that, that reach farther in. And so the Decapolis was a region These cities were mostly founded probably third century BC, somewhere around there, but they were pulled together after 63 BC when Pompey the Great, the Roman general came in, rode through the region and began to reorganize the Middle East to the benefit of the Roman empire. And the Decapolis was this league of 10 towns whose purpose and design was to promote the Greco-Roman culture. These were big, lavish City states compared to the little towns that Jesus and his followers have been operating in thus far. And so the Decapolis refers to the ten towns or the ten city states. It also refers to the region around them. And this region was not Jewish at all, it was Roman, it was pagan, it was populated by the nations, not. Israel, not the Jewish people. The religion was the Greco Roman religion with all of the many gods, all of the many temples, all of the many rituals. The culture was thoroughly Hellenism. They had the theaters, they had the gymnasia, the entertainment, education, language, all of it very, very Roman. It was opulent wealthy, seductive, highly sexualized in its worship practices and cultural practices, it was not Jewish at all. And when Mark begins a story by saying, they go to the other side, it's not just geography that he's interested in. It's not the mere fact that they traveled the seven miles from one side of the lake to the other. It's that they've gone to the dark side, religiously speaking. Jewish people would not go to the Decapolis on purpose because what happened there was a bunch of things that they considered to be unclean, things that they couldn't get near, things they weren't allowed to be around like pigs and tombs, two prominent symbols featured right here in this story. In fact, if you read the parable of the prodigal son, one of, one of our favorites, right? Where the son, he asks for his inheritance early and then he goes to some faraway country and he finds himself in cahoots with pigs. He's in the Decapolis. So Jesus and his disciples, they come to the other side of the sea. There's so much to be said about this drama of crossing the sea. It happens a couple of times in Mark. And when they cross that way going toward the dark side, something bad happens on the water each time. Jesus has to calm a storm or he has to come walking by on the surface of the chaos waters. When they go the other way and they're returning back home, it's always smooth sailing. The sea is high drama for Mark. And this is a sequence in his book where there's a series of miracle stories and it's like a repeated cycle. You've got two of all of the different things, right? You've got two of the kinds of, um, you've, got, you've got a couple of you know, sea calming things. You've got a couple of casting out demons type of things. You've got a couple of healing uh, type of miracles and Jesus is doing them in these pairs and Mark is setting it up in this way where he's wanting to tease out some of the symbolic meanings for us of what it is that Jesus is doing. The other thing Mark is doing is as he's writing his book, he is portraying a portrait of Jesus, the King. Mark is like a book in two very clean halves where the first half is building up to that moment in chapter eight, where the big question, who is Jesus comes to the fore. It's a question that's been lingering throughout Mark's whole book, but you finally get to this moment in chapter eight where they're talking about, people say Jesus is this, people say Jesus is that, and he turns and he says, but who do you say that I am? And there's this moment where Peter says, you're the Messiah. That's the halfway point. There'll be another point at the end where a Roman centurion looking at Jesus on the cross will say, surely this is the son of God. You get these two movements, each building toward this confession that says, who is Jesus? All building on Mark's opening sentence, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Who is Jesus? First movement demonstrates, well, he is the Messiah and he is the Messiah whose kingdom is coming. It's gonna be a different kind of king. He's gonna be the Messiah who has to die He's gonna be the Messiah who has to die and who has to rise. He's the king who's coming to bring a kingdom that is different than all the other kingdoms. He's a different kind of guy. His rule is a different kind of rule. And this story that we get of Jesus going to the other side and engaging this guy with the unclean spirit is all part of Mark's composite portrait of Jesus as a different kind of king of a different kind of kingdom. This is less about the private psychology and healing of this man. And it's more about the public action of Jesus, demonstrating his authority over all things seen and unseen. Earlier in Mark's gospel, we see Jesus do this very kind of thing in the synagogue in Jewish territory where he's there in Capernaum and there's a man with an unclean spirit there and Jesus engages there in a direct dialogue with the demon and he casts him out. That's in the Jewish territory. And then he's doing the same kind of thing again now in non-Jewish territory. And this movement is gonna be very significant because what happens is we see Jesus is beginning to pull back the curtain on the plan of God. That it's not just the restoration of the kingdom of Israel, but God is coming to be carrying forward his great project of the renewal of all things. And that is going to be not just restoring the Jewish people, but that's going to be making one people out of all the nations of the earth, in all of its beautiful diversity, to become the beloved community, the beautiful community united in Christ, joined with him, partnering with him in the work of making all things new. So they come to the other side, to the country of the Gerasenes. That's a shorthand way of referring to the Decapolis Uh, Just a quick note, if you read Matthew and Luke, like you get three different place names for exactly where this is happening. Gerasenes is referring to Gerasa. That is one of the cities of the Decapolis. Gadarenes is referring to Gadara, another city of the Decapolis. There are different ways of referring to this region. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke will each utilize different terminology. It's possible that Mark here is selecting the term Gerasenes even though that's not actually geographically the closest one, it might be because there was a specific focus on Garasa when Emperor Vespasian came crushing in with Roman military might in the late 60s and made a, he sent a special cavalry unit to Garasa. There might be a military significance to that one place that Mark is wanting to key in on. Hard to say for certain, but the point is, They've gone to the pagan side of the sea. They've gone to the side you don't go to. They've gone to the side where the untouchables live. And Jesus has led these faithful followers on a boat ride to the place you're not supposed to go. So they come to the country of the Gerasenes, they come to that other side And verse 2 says, When he had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And listen to this guy. Just get, like, let the mental picture of this guy sink in. He lived among the tombs, like he lived in tombs. No one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain. For he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart and the shackles he broke in pieces and no one had the strength to subdue him. We live in the city. You know what it's like to be walking through the street and to experience someone shouting something, right? Something, or, or, or see someone agitated in a way that feels discomforting even distressing. It happens all, I mean, I, you know, you, you'll see people shouting at you or whatever. This, these things happen. mental illness is all through our city. Um, and the people who are not fitting the mold of what we would consider civilized behavior are all over. We see them frequently if you just walk around town. I've never seen one that looked like a Navy SEAL that was like in my face. That would add a whole other level to the discomfort, wouldn't it? if someone who's shouting at you, who is obviously not like able to compose themselves is also way stronger than you. I realize I live in the world as a six foot five male. And I realize that there's a certain privilege that comes with that, where there's a certain level of discomfort that just doesn't touch me that many of you feel every time you walk outside at night. But, there's, but even I, as I think about what that would be like, that's terrifying to think about what it would be like to encounter this guy who's breaking through chains, who's cutting himself with rocks, who's living among tombs, who's an outcast of outcasts, who is out of control and is also very strong and aggressive. This is who you meet the moment you set foot on the shore of the dark side. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. When Jesus, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him and he shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. And this is so weird. Just let the scene come alive in your, in your mind. This is what's happening. This ridiculously strong guy who no one's been able to subdue, running at them, then falling on his knees before Jesus and then pleading with him. Imagine being like Peter in the boat. I wonder if Peter got out of the boat. He doesn't make much of a showing in this story. The disciples are probably thinking like, where in the world has he brought us? But he's pleading with Jesus not to torment him because Jesus had said to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And then Jesus says, what is your name? There are only two places in Mark where you get Jesus talking directly with an unclean spirit. This is the second of the two. I've already alluded to the first one in the synagogue in Capernaum. What Jesus does there is he he goes into the territory that is being ruled. the religious establishment. He engages in some conflict. The conflict immediately leads to a spiritual dialogue and exorcism where Jesus demonstrates his authority in the synagogue space. Now Jesus has arrived in new territory, and the first thing that happens in the new territory, in the non-Jewish space, is another encounter with another direct dialogue with another what-is-your-name situation with this spirit. Both of these inaugurate or initiate a phase of Jesus's ministry. And both of these encounters will make him famous in that place. They create a buzz. Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion for we are many. That is so creepy. My, we, shift to the plural. It is so weird. But if we were living in Jesus's time, if we were living in Mark's time, if we were reading this as citizens of this kind of a world and these places, the word legion would have had one and only one meaning. It's Roman troops. The occupying Roman military that was the bane of the existence of all of these Palestinian Jewish people. The iron fist of Rome under which they had squirmed for so long. That military was built on the foundation of 25 legions. Legions each having at least 5,000 people. The head of the legion was Caesar, who was called the son of God. And it was the greatest demonstration of might in the world. Mark is telling this story in a way that's intentionally politically provocative. And some of the major themes of this story go right by us if we don't understand. This is chock full of military code language. The word for herd that we find in verse 11, isn't a word you would typically use for pigs because pigs don't travel in herds. But it is a word that you use for new military recruits, for a group of new new soldiers in basic training, so to speak. When Jesus interacts with Legion and they're begging him, right? They're, they're, They're talking with him let us go into the pigs. The word used there for dismissing is like military commander lingo. And when they go in the pigs and the pigs charge into the sea, that charge, that's another military word too. It's the word you'd use for like a military assault, for charging into battle. This is a coded story that Mark is writing into a context that's full of revolt, rebellion, squashed rebellions, despair, hopes for deliverance, different insurgencies being rooted out and snuffed out, many of those leaders being crucified. And Mark is telling the story of another kind of king who's leading another kind of revolution, a kingdom that is not like Rome but is more powerful than Rome, even when it doesn't appear to be. And he's portraying Jesus as the king who's bringing about that kingdom. He's telling a story that's building toward a crescendo in which we'll recognize that the kind of king he is, is one who will have to be crucified at the hands of the evil empire and to be raised by the bigger emperor, God, the creator of all things to be enthroned above them all, to rule over all. And that the way that that kingdom comes about on earth is not through violence and military might, but through love and the way of the cross. But here, we're not yet at that part of the story. Here, we're at the part where Jesus finds himself face to face in a head-on conflict with the legion. Now, not meaning to indicate this is mere allegory. I'm merely pointing out Mark is telling us the story of Jesus healing this man in a way that we don't miss some of what he thinks is very important for us to catch. Because the hope of the people is deliverance from Rome. And as we think about even our hope, In our own lives, often just deliverance from the various kinds of despair, the various kinds of trappings, the various kinds of enslavements we find ourselves in. Whether we're trapped in addiction or something else, a relational conflict, vocational dissatisfaction, where we're trapped in the systemic realities that feel just too big to fix, the injustices poverty, hunger. It's easy to to despair over the problems being too big and the opposing forces being too strong, too wealthy, too connected, too committed to preserving the status quo, whatever. The people of Israel, the the Palestinian Jews in Jesus' day, they knew that kind of heartache and longing more acutely than probably almost any of us ever will. And yet Jesus comes along to offer them the hope that the living God has not left them alone in that struggle, alone in that brokenness, alone in that despair. But instead he's moving the promise forward. He's bringing the kingdom, he's bringing the wholeness, he's bringing the justice. He's just doing it in a way that is so different and so much bigger than any of us would have ever guessed or hoped or imagined. It's a cosmic renewal of all things. But here we see Jesus encountering the legion. So the 10th legion of the Roman military was sent to the Decapolis to protect the Roman empire against the threat from Parthia to the east. And the 10th Legion, when they were not on active duty in the area, in military duty, they would on their off time be put to building work. When they weren't needed to fight, they were used to build. And the things that they built at that time, they would leave their their insignia. They would leave their mark like this wall was built by 10th Legion. And if you go to the Israel Museum today, you can see some of these building stones or emblems. You can even see a coin. Guess what their logo was? It was a pig. It was a boar, the 10th Legion. Jesus permits the legion to go into the pigs and the pigs charge into the sea and are drowned. Now this obviously reminds us of Exodus type stuff, right? Drowning the enemy army in the sea. This is the God of the Exodus doing the thing, but there's, there's more to it than that. It's weird that there would be 2000 pigs though on a hill because none of the cities in this place were big enough to support that size of, well, that many pigs. That, would be, that, would, that, that doesn't match the populations of these places unless, unless there's a legion of Roman troops adding to the numbers of the population, right? So Jesus dismisses them, exercising his military authority over the legion. He lets them go into the pigs. The pigs then charge right into the sea and drown. That's weird too, because pigs float. They're not known for being lean, right? We know them for their bacon. That's fat that floats. Pigs are actually very good swimmers. What happened? The sea... We think Mark being the first of the gospel writers is probably the first person to ever use the word sea to refer to the Lake of Galilee, this freshwater body inland that's not a sea, but he uses the word sea because he wants us to connect what's happening on that water to all of the big theology of the sea that happens in creation and redemption, all of the God ruling over chaos, all of the abyss and the deep and God's creative and liberating power exercises over all of the force. These pigs are driven into the abyss. Who lives in the abyss? The demons do, they went home. Jesus dismissed them from his realm and they went home to the abyss and the pigs that they inhabited died as carriers along the way. This is a weirder story than we even thought because it's so old. It's full of military coded language. But of course it's also about what Jesus is up to because it's not just about the fact that Jesus's authority is greater. That is Mark's main point as he exercises Jesus's power and authority over the wind and the waves, over the spiritual realms, over physical sickness when he does healings and then even over death as he's about to raise a little girl as soon as he comes back over onto the good side of the lake. Mark is ordering these stories as demonstrations of Jesus's authority over all the spheres. So we're supposed to get this sense of, whoa, he's big time. But of course this happens in the context of this one man being embraced by Jesus and liberated from all that torments him. The man is now in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion and the people were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it. Oh yeah, it's quite a story. And they began to beg Jesus to leave. What Jesus is up to can look kind of freaky when you realize just how much it disturbs the status quo of the kingdoms of this world. One of the things that we become blind to in our own cultural context is just how different Jesus's way of life is from ours. I already told you I've drunk the Kool-Aid of secularism. So have you. We need to drink the Kool-Aid of Jesus and detox off of that secularism stuff a little bit more because the life Jesus is calling us into is a transformational way of life that calls forth from us an actual turning away from various American ways of doing things, right? And there are gonna be good things about Americanism and all that, but there are also gonna be bad things. The point is the good things are gonna be those that match the creator's intention for creation, that match God's intention for humanity, right? How do we live with our money? How do we live with our neighbor? How do we live in relationships? Are we doing the competitive game of the American dream? Where at the end of the day, it's a zero sum game. I wanna be a winner, not a loser. And if you get in my way, I'm gonna beat you. We're always sizing one another up. We're playing the comparison game. Or love your neighbor. Prefer your neighbor. No greater life has anyone than this, but to lay down one's life for one's friends. The way of Jesus is very different. It's different than the way that we feel is very normal. And so it calls forth from us a kind of unsettling journeying with Jesus into places we might not otherwise choose to go. And that can get kind of scary. And the people here in the Decapolis recognize in Jesus some kind of might that is too big, some kind of difference that is too much, and they're like, dude, get out of here, please. They beg him to leave. There's a lot of begging happening in this story. The legion begs him to let him go into the pigs. The occupying force, that they, all they wanted to do is leave. They're now begging Jesus. The people of the town, they're begging Jesus to leave. And the man who's been healed is begging Jesus to let him go along. Let me go with you. Let me go in the boat. Let me ride with you. And Jesus surprisingly says, no. And he says to this man, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has, sh- and what mercy he has shown you. And you see the man go away and begin to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Now, if I were this guy, and I had just experienced that kind of liberation. I also, I think I would be begging Jesus, please let me go with you. I just want more of what you've got. You are where life is, I wanna ride along with you. Makes total sense to me. It feels a little surprising that Jesus says no to him. He lets Judas ride along. This guy, no, why? Well, if you read the story forward a little bit and you get to Mark chapter seven and eight, you'll see Jesus having gone back to the good side of the lake, now come back across the lake to the other side again. We see Jesus come back to the Decapolis at the end of chapter seven. And when he comes back, there's a crowd that is so excited to meet him. And 4,000 of them will spend three days with Jesus right in this same vicinity. And he will feed them doing his feeding of the 4,000 miracle that mirrors his feeding of the 5,000 miracle, but the 4,000 is done in this dark side territory, the nation's territory, the non-Jewish territory where Jesus begins to show that the kingdom he's come to bring is for all the nations, including the pagan ones. Where did the crowd come from? How is it that 4,000 people in the Decapolis of all places are now flocking to this guy, Jesus, when he comes back? You have to think it might have something to do with the fact that this guy started telling his story and proclaiming in their region all that Jesus had done for him. And they heard him telling the story of how God had liberated him. They heard him tell the story of how God had worked in his life and they were moved and they wanted to hear more. They wanted to see this Jesus for themselves. And you got to imagine this dude who had, Jesus said, no, you can't ride along with me. You have to imagine when it comes time to feed the 4,000, they're all back in the region, you know he's hanging out, soaking up Jesus for those three days when they're all there together, along with all these other people who are now interested. As we pull a story like this toward our lives, as we begin to think about how do we inhabit this, one I think is just to recognize there is no one outside the reach of God's liberating grace. I don't know your story, I don't know all that you've done, all that you've experienced, all that you fear, the baggage you bring, the hopes and fears you bring into the space. But please hear me say this, God knows you and God loves you. And you are not beyond the reach of his grace. He delights in you. He invites you to experience his embrace. He invites you to come and taste and see his goodness. He invites you to come and encounter this liberating Jesus who will embrace you right where you are and who will take you on a journey of transformation that will change your life. And so whether that's something that you're hearing for the first time today or the millionth time, it's still just as true. The invitation is still just as real this guy, the scariest outcast in pagan territory, as unclean as they come, Jesus liberated him in a moment, shocking his disciples, I'm sure. You are known and loved by God. And so is your neighbor as you go into those spaces. And the other thing is, Let's pay more attention to our stories. Think about your own story. What has God done in your life? Reflect on it, know it, give thanks for it and tell people. We need to make more space for hearing one another's stories because when we do, we realize that God is alive and active and real and this reign of Jesus that is more than we can see, it touches our lives in so many different and beautiful ways. And it really is the chorus of the saints bearing witness to that reality that's going to woo us back toward Jesus and help us detox off the Kool-Aid of secularism that we have all binged on for most of our entire lives. My hope and prayer is that God is doing something in our midst, in our community, making us new, making us like Jesus. And that stories like these give us a window into just how amazing and powerful the grace and activity of Jesus is in our lives and in the world. Will you join me bowing your heads and let's give a word of thanks to our God who loves us. Lord Jesus, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. You are ruler of heaven and earth, and yet you are also our tender and compassionate friend who draws near to the sufferer, who liberates the oppressed, who touches us in our places of despair and weariness, woundedness, loss. God, would you stir up within us by your spirit, a renewed love for you, a renewed energy to draw near to you and to participate in the things that you are involved in. Would you open our eyes of faith to perceive your care and your provision, your salvation? Would you move in us to be grateful and to overflow, with thanksgiving and would you help us to know and to tell our own stories in honest, meaningful and powerful ways as we bear witness to the reality of your love, of your life and of your whirlwind of renewing activity within us, around us and in the world give you all thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.